If you guys have a Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 16, verses 10 through 16. Let us start by uh, praying this prayer, and you guys can pray it with me. You don't have to stand, but you can pray it with me, and then we'll read the scripture. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Blessed are the readers, hearers, and keepers of this word. Revelation 16, 10 through 16. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings the kings from the east and i saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Remember that this is a continuation of a scene that we've been seeing. And in this continuation, we're supposed to keep our eyes on Jesus. Like we can get really lost really fast if we don't keep our eyes fixed on Christ. He is and was and always will be. And we get to take great comfort in this in the midst of gnawing their tongues out in darkness and, and uh, people coming to battle against God. Um, in this text, we see what it is like for those who curse God and those who want to curse God, and, and it's as if, we said, like we said last week, it's as if they get what they wanted. These are people who don't want God, not at any cost. They don't want His grace. They don't want His love. They don't want His provision. They don't want respite from their chosen life, and they, they just don't want Him at all. So He's showing them what it's like to just remove Himself completely, like, Oftentimes in this world, people think, well, God's absent, but he is not. He is here. I love that here it is the, the, uh, in, verse, um, in verse 11, it says they cursed the God of heaven. And this idea of the God of heaven is the God who is above all things. They cursed this God. This is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we sing about, that we pray to, that we worship, and that we try and focus our lives on. It's the one that when we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him, all creatures here below each and every week. This is who we're singing to, this God. The God of heaven has also revealed that He is the God of earth as well, that He is the God of all things, and He is showing His power and splendor and glory. Those who worship him in this scene are gathered around the, his throne in his throne room. And then there are those who do not repent, who don't want to worship them. Those who curse God and the lamb and the people of God. And this is who we see these bowls of wrath being poured out on. These people and nations, or as we've said a lot, their empires and their idols, 
the beast and its followers, and they have the fifth and sixth bowls of wrath in this section of Scripture poured out on them. And the fifth bowl of wrath is darkness. It's felt darkness. A darkness with no relief. Flashlights won't penetrate this darkness. It's a darkness that doesn't just affect the eyes. It affects the soul and evidently the mind as well. It causes people to gnaw their own tongues in anguish. This is beyond, hey, it's really dark out. And it goes into this this is a plague. This is something that is it's unwelcome punishment that these folks are plunged into. I love the use of the word plunged in this, this sense. Then the seventh bowl of wrath is where waters of the east are dried up. One of the rivers that we see in the beginning of the, the Bible is the river Euphrates. And so this river has run its course throughout human history. It's flowed the entire time. And a river that has literally flown throughout all of human history is dried up in this scene. And God dries up these rivers because the kings of the whole world want to go to war with the beast and his demons and wage war against the God of heaven. And so God, in his maybe one of his acts of grace is preparing an easier path for those who want to oppose him. You want to oppose me? Here's a way. Here's a, You can come and do this. I'm going to create a way for you to do this. And as these waters are dried up, we see dis- demonic spirits coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. And these spirits are like frogs. And I found this very interesting to learn this week when when I was a kid, I collected frogs. Have any of you guys done that? I know you guys haven't. Mo did, okay. And they were cool. Like we had, we had pretty tree frogs and we had like frogs that we'd catch out in the yard that we would, we'd have or frogs that we'd catch at my good friend Scott's house and we'd bring those over. And, and my mom would buy crickets to eat and we had like a terrarium for her to live in that always stunk up the whole house, which uh, it, it, it did, but I thought it was a cool nature smell, I guess. I never thought of, like I had known the story in Exodus where he sent frogs and I was like, didn't seem too bad to me. Like it wasn't one of those things where I was like, okay, frogs are cool. I like them. I thought they were kind of like cute and interesting and, and uh, they were a blessing to me and not a plague. But here in this, if, if in the time that John penned Revelation, frogs were not seen as cute house pets that eat crickets or climb on trees. And some of you guys may think, well, yeah, of course they're not. But I did. That's what I thought. They were wart-producing, disease-ridden, filthy, disgusting pets. That's probably how I would see them now, actually. But, like, that's how the culture thought of them. Think about how, like, as a culture, we think of rats or cockroaches. They're not clean. We don't like them. We don't want them in our house. We don't want them defiling us. And they were, and that's what these frogs were. They were considered ugly and vicious, annoying, dirty creatures that should be avoided at all cost. And this is what the unclean spirits of the beast and the dragon and the prophets, they go out and they should remind us, they should remind us of vicious, annoying, dirty spirits that go out and get things all nasty and dirty. The ideas that are spreading from these, these people are bad and nasty and disgusting ideas, just like the idea of going to wage war against the God of heaven. That's a frog-like idea. 
It is not good. It is not a clean idea. It appears in this text that the government, or as we've called them throughout Revelation, the empires, they actually get together and act in a total and complete defiance of God and his saints. They think that they're going to march out and get rid of God once and for all, and they see God, his Christ, and his people, and they actively fight, persecute, defy, and deny, even though they see them, and, and getting, they get together in a great horde to fight God. And this, they have assembled at Armageddon. Now, Armageddon is one of those interesting words in Revelation. Some people think that it's an event rather than a place. Some people think it's a place and not just an event. Either way, uh, it is an act of the empires under the leadership of the dragon and the beast and its false prophets that are going to wage war against God once and for all. I believe this is what a lack of repentance does. It takes us to this place. It leads us to where we wage war against God. We've seen people in the Bible who don't want to repent before. We've seen it many times over and over, but I think mainly when I think of this, I think of church folk who get proud and haughty in their thinking, thinking that they understand the ways that God works and that they no longer need to live a life of repentance. I think of uh, church folks who didn't repent, but they put Jesus on the cross instead of repenting from their own pride and arrogance. They waged war against Jesus because they felt that their power was threatened by him. And when we don't want to live a life of repentance, like our whole life, every moment and every aspect of our life, when we don't want to live that in the light of Christ, we are plunged into darkness and we are in a way getting ready to wage war against Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we don't want darkness or to war against him. So what we do as followers of Jesus is practice repentance. Amen. We live with the humility knowing that we might be wrong in inviting God's spirit to come in and correct our lives. And we know that instead of going to war, um, uh, to go to war against Jesus and putting him on the cross, Jesus went to the cross for us in our place. Second Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He became sin so that we don't have to. He took the punishment for us, and in turn, we live a life of repentance and worship to Him. We live a life unlike the life of the fifth and the sixth bowls of wrath that are in darkness and they're waterless. We live a life in the light of Christ. And with Christ is uh, as our water of life as well. We know that water is needed to drink repeatedly, to, to have health for our bodies. And as drinking uh, freely of it and constantly, we need that for our relationship with Christ as well. We need to drink from the waters of Christ. And we do this in part through repentance. And when we drift, like we sung about, like when we drift, because we do, we submit to God's plan, turn from our own ways and follow Jesus' path, not our own path. Not the path of the empires, not the paths that are trying to destroy us, but we get up from those paths and we walk back with Jesus step by step. We walk in light 
of his goodness and his grace. We walk in light of his death, burial, and resurrection for us. And this is what keeps us in the light. And this is what keeps us away from waging war against him. When we let him speak into our lives and don't tell him that he's wrong and we're right. The fact that these bowls of wrath are darkness and waterless should lead us to think of Christ who claimed and wholeheartedly uh, and we wholeheartedly believe, or at least we try to wholeheartedly believe, right? But Jesus, will you please help those areas where we don't believe? We wholeheartedly believe, believe that Jesus is the light, that Jesus is the water of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The life in the, uh, the, life in the water and the light does not lead to war with him unless we are on his side battling against his enemies. It is a different life than the ones that we can see on earth. One that is focused on Jesus and willing to be corrected. Although, I will say this, we don't listen to false lying prophets from the beast. We don't listen to the frog lies that come in and try and attack us. But nonetheless, we, are, we stand in a position where we are willing to be corrected, willing to be changed by the power of God's grace. And here in part... Of the telling of this story, we see in parentheses a message from Jesus. I love this. It's a reminder that, that, that we get to keep our eyes on him, even though the scene is dark, right? It's so dark that they're gnawing their tongues, and that the war is about to begin. We can still keep our eyes on Jesus and have no fear. And I think that this is important, that we have no fear of the empires that are going to wage against God, because that's what they do. We have no fear of the beast and the dragons and the false prophets that, that, that are talked about here. This assembly appears to be large as they're gathered. And we'd be tempted to fear that we might be on the losing end like we've seen so many times in Scripture. But the God of heaven gives us a, a little interjection, a little reminder. Hey, I, I'm, behold, I'm coming. I am coming. I know this vast army's out there and it's scary, but I am coming. He says, I'm coming. Stay awake. Keep your clothes on so we won't be naked and exposed, which is always a good idea at church. Amen. So always a good idea. And I love this message. And it's such a good reminder, even for us who aren't in necessarily these dark times, we have our own dark times this day and age. And the message still remains the same. Behold, I am coming. Stay awake. Keep your clothes on so we won't be naked and exposed. We live in a day and age where fear abounds and we are constantly looks like the kingdom of God won't win. And it doesn't matter what political side on you, you, you land on, but there's, there's ways that we can get around it that we just live in fear of something bad that's going to happen. And God's saying, you don't have to do that. I am coming. This is my promise to you. And as we live here and today, there's plenty of around us that, that think that God's kingdom can't possibly break through the evil of this world. And God's saying, I can. So the message is to behold, I am coming. And this is a promise, a reminder that it is going to happen. Like there's no doubt about it. This is going to happen. God hasn't forgotten about us. He hasn't abandoned us. He doesn't want or like the destruction that is going on. And he is coming. When we don't know, when we don't know. Just like we don't know if a thief 
uh, may strike our homes or our cars at any moment. We don't know when that is. God's going to come in that moment. And it's unexpected and unpredictable, but He is coming. That's what we can rest our faith in. God has uh, been reminding us over and over and over for a long time and will continue to remind us until we see Him face to face that He is coming. And we will not let go of this promise until this promise is fulfilled. So I pray that we, as Grace and Mercy Church, may take courage in the fact that God is coming because of His great love for us. And his, he, he will fulfill His promises. But then since He is coming, since we know that He's coming, our faith can be established in that, then He tells us, stay awake. I was actually reminded of this this week as I was, I was reading And this is a constant theme in the Psalms, to stay awake, to be alert. It means that we don't give up on the difficult task of hope. We don't give up on the difficult task of hope, even when things look dark. We can always expect Jesus to show up. And it isn't easy to believe every day, but we get to stay awake. We get to stay prepared. We get to stay ready. And I I like to think of it this way. We get to live in expectancy that God is at work. He's doing something. And so we just get to stay alert to that. He is working things out for his people and for his kingdom and for his glory. And I I love that in Psalm 130, it says, as the watchman waits for the morning in uh, Tish Harrison Warren Uh, reminded me this week that the watchman doesn't know if the thief or the dawn will come first. So they wait and they watch. So we stay awake and we stay attentive. And Psalm 130 teaches us this prayer of waiting and expectancy. And Revelation 16 reminds us of this prayer for our to stay awake as our souls wait. And I'm just going to pray over us Psalm 130, uh, 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word, I have hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. But the part that I love in this scripture uh, so much is to remind us that we get to stay clothed and not go around naked and exposed. In part because I'm still a little boy in my mind and my head and I thought it was funny but in part because of what I believe it's saying to us about our life in Christ. Part of staying awake is having our clothes on means that we know that demoness and unclean spirits are alive and doing battle and don't want us to win. We know this. They want to point out our nakedness. They want to try and convince us that God can't love us, that God doesn't love us, that he can't love us. And if we know that this is a point where the enemy is going to attack us, then we'll be wise. Then we can be wise to consider the ways of our enemies and be aware, be aware and stay awake with our clothes on. So nakedness is a symbol for shame, right? The shame that we feel. And if I think of it this way, what if everyone knew everything about you? Like nothing was hidden. Even the parts you didn't want them to know about, even the parts that you're not proud of or the parts that you regret in life that you don't want to bring up, that you don't want to give voice to, all the bad stuff, all the sins that you've committed, all the sins that you maybe even be committing, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of us. It puts us on a pretty even playing field. 
if anyone was to point out all the ways that we sinned and we started believing the lies that we can't be loved because of this sin and because of the wrongs that we've done, or then this is why we put on our clothes and our nakedness and our shame can be covered. I know what happens when someone knows our sin, when someone knows our shame, when someone knows our nakedness, they remind us of it. They remind us that we are no goody two-shoes. They remind us that even if we claim to be Christians, they know the real us. They know the, 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 the us, the evil that lies inside us and that pours out our mouth or in our actions. The person who does wrong, and most of the time, people are going to remind you of it. And, if we, and they're going to remind you just to kind of try and level the playing field and, and bring you down to their level. But if we stop doing those evil things, they'll even remind us all the more because they want us back where we once were. They want us back where we once were. They want us to feel the same sin and shame that we've always had. And if we're not well clothed, we may believe the lies that God can't love us or God doesn't love us. And that's not true. We don't come to Christ because we are better than anybody else, but because he is better than everyone else. That's why we come to Christ. He takes our shame and he gives us new clothes, his clothes for us. He gives us his holiness, his righteousness, his sinlessness. He traded our dirty, filthy rags, our uh, shame and sin-ridden garments, and he gives us his clothing. That's the truth of who we are. We are dressed as we sung before and we'll sing again. We are dressed in his righteousness alone. And if we have these clothes on, if we have his righteousness on, our shame is gone and we know it because we believe the truth that God says about us. The God of heaven... This is the beautiful thing about this. The God of heaven has seen all our flaws and yet deemed us lovable. This is the great miracle for us. He knows all the dirty, shame-filled, sin-filled acts and thoughts that we've had and maybe even still have, but he still says, I love you. And that is different than what would happen in our world today. He doesn't undress us and remind us of our shame. He clothes us and reminds us that we are love and this is how I see you. I don't see your shame. I see your beauty and your grace. And the beauty that these clothes come as a grace. A grace, unmerited, undeserved, favor from God. Jesus died to give us these clothes and we get to wear them as an act of humility Because we don't even believe our own lies that we're not good enough for God to love us. So we do this in humility and we do this in repentance because we want to believe what God says about us, not what we would say about us or the world would say about us as well. And then we do this in humility because we know that we aren't goody two-shoes, right? We're not better than anybody. We're just trying to be loved by God and trying to believe that and live out of that. We're we're trying to do our best. And we wear them, these clothes in repentance because we know our sin as well as anybody else, but God no longer sees the sin. He calls us righteous. And so because of his grace, we're inspired to keep shedding the sin and putting on the clothes that he gives us. So in this, we believe what God says about us, not what our sin says about us. We are washed, 
by the blood of Jesus, his broken body and his shed blood are enough to cover all our uncleanliness. I love that this little section is in the in this scripture, in the recording about the, the woes, that Jesus is reminding us um, what we get to be. This is who you are. You're not, a, you're not about to be defeated. I'm coming. I'm coming. Stay awake. Stay clothed. You're not naked. I gave you my garments. Jesus is our light. He is our water. He is coming. We get to stay awake and we get to stay clothed. And I pray, this has been my prayer all week for us, that we, we just do that. That we simply, we live in repentance and humility. We live a life of faith, hope, and love that Jesus has proved for us and he will provide for us forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I pray that you will just continue to remind us of your goodness, that you will continue to remind us of your grace, that you will continue to speak to us, Lord, that we may stay awake and have the faith that you are coming, that your promises do come true. And so, Lord, I pray that we may stand also clothed in your righteousness alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you guys go ahead and prepare your communion?